You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So from my doctoral days, at that time I was training stroke patients on a motor intervention to improve their arm function. And uh, during one such training, there were two gentlemen who were scheduled to visit our lab. One of them was the individual who had experienced the stroke and the second one was the family member. So I greeted them like usual at the lobby and while they were seated, I explained to them the procedures that we will be doing that day. I noticed that one gentleman was lean and slim, about six feet tall and he was in his early 40s. The second gentleman was of a heavier build and he was five feet tall, about in his 60s. I assumed that the second man who was in his 60s was the individual who had stroke and I passed him the paperwork for his signature. And then, you know, to my utter astonishment, he passed the papers to the other gentleman who was in in his 40s. And that's when I realized the mistake that I had made. Uh, Until that day, I had only trained older individuals with stroke. So this experience bust the myth and the bias that I had been carrying for a while that stroke is a disease of older people. And that day I learned a very important lesson. And that is that stroke can happen to anyone and at any age. May is Stroke Awareness Month in the United States. So we thought we would do an episode this month about the ins and outs of stroke and how to prevent strokes from happening. You just heard from Dr. Neha Lodha, our guest on the show today. Dr. Lodha is an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at CSU, whose research focuses on rehab interventions for individuals who have experienced stroke. In our conversation, we cover the different types of strokes and ways to recognize when a stroke is happening. We also share information about Dr. Lodha's mobility clinics, which she offers to residents in Larimer County, age 60 and above, to assess their risk for falls or driving crashes. Be sure to check the episode notes for links to more information. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Well, first off, Neha, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast and talking to me about this topic. I think it's an incredibly important topic, and I'm glad that we have you to be the one speaking with us. Hannah, thank you for inviting me. Yes. So so let's just dive in generally, and, and can wondering if you can tell us what is stroke and what are the warning signs of stroke? Because I think from movies and TVs, we have one vision of what a stroke looks like and how it presents itself, but that's not the only way it can, it can present. Yeah, so stroke is a sudden disease. And I will say that again, stroke is a sudden disease because that is one of the distinguishing characteristics of this neurological disorder. Uh, in stroke, there is a you know the part a part of the brain loses the blood supply, and as a result, the brain tissue is damaged, which causes the loss of function, uh, and it could result in sudden weakness of arms, legs, or face, 
or also sudden difficulty in speech. So like I said, the key thing here is that stroke is sudden and not progressive, meaning that one minute someone could be functioning just fine and the next minute they could suddenly be experiencing drooping of their face or limb weakness. The other key thing I want to mention is that uh, we may see that stroke affects one side of the body more than the other side. And this happens when the stroke is caused by a blood clot. So um, a blood clot in the brain blocks the artery that feeds the brain with the blood. And since our brains, uh, we have two hemispheres in our brain and they control the opposite side of the body. So if we see one side of the body is more affected, it's most likely because the brain clot is on the other side of the brain. I wonder for this, this next question, if you can tell us the difference between the different kinds of strokes. There's ischemic stroke versus a hemorrhagic stroke. So, so what are those two differences? Yeah, so, you know, in the layman's language, they are called a clot and a bleed. And I'll explain what each one of, that mean, of those mean. So a clot is the ischemic stroke. Um, as the name suggests, it is co caused by a clot that blocks the blood artery that is feeding to the brain cells. And when the brain cells do not get the blood supply, then they are deprived of the oxygen and the nutrition and they die. The second kind of stroke is the hemorrhagic stroke, which is caused by rupture of an artery in the brain and it typically leads to bleeding and a more widespread damage in the brain than that is caused by a clot. Awesome. And then there is this other kind. Uh, I, I guess you would also classify it as a stroke, but it's a little bit different. A, a TIA, a transient ischemic attack. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference with that one? Yeah, so uh, TIA is, uh, in a layman's language, I want to make sure everybody gets that, it's called a mini stroke. And a mini stroke is caused by a temporary uh, blockage to the artery um, that feeds the brain. And the symptoms are much milder and they last for relatively very brief duration. And typically we see that those symptoms will resolve very quickly on their own within 24 hours. Stroke, a full-blown stroke, on the other hand, is caused by a more permanent uh, loss of blood supply to the brain. The symptoms that result from stroke are more persistent and they will not dissolve or resolve by themselves. But it, I think it's important to note, too, what I found in my research is that um, oftentimes these TIAs, transient ischemic attacks, are a warning sign of a future mm -hmm. stroke mm -hmm. to occur. So they are definitely yeah. not something that you should just overlook. Yeah. So, you know, some, what happens is that uh, if the symptoms go away after a few minutes, then it's most likely a mini stroke or TIA, as you said. But although the symptoms are very brief. TIA is a medical emergency, period. TIA is a medical emergency. And the most important thing is that the TIA could be a warning sign for a subsequent stroke. Uh, we know that now a person who's had one or more TIAs uh, has almost 10 times higher likelihood of getting a stroke than a person of the same age and sex who hasn't had a TIA. Unfortunately, what happens is because TIA clears up very quickly, many people tend to ignore it. 
but paying attention to TIA is really important and telling your doctor about the brief duration of the symptoms is important because it could save you from having a bigger stroke and prevent, you know, long-term uh, physical disability. Right. And see, we're getting into the weeds with the different kinds of strokes here because all strokes are different. So it's important to recognize that symptoms might also be different, correct? Well, you know, all strokes are different. Like I said, uh, each stroke is different, in fact, because it depends on the location of the brain. Uh, where the clot or the bleed has happened, which will in turn determine what functions will be lost as a result. I know when I was researching about stroke that I saw these guidelines. I'm wondering maybe it was the CDC or someone who came up with these, um, this, this ACT FAST acronym that, that helps you identify what the warning signs of strokes are. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah. So, you know, let me first explain why they chose FAST, F-A-S-T, as an acronym for recognizing stroke. So the, the key thing here is that time is highly critical when someone is experiencing a stroke. The faster we recognize that somebody is having a stroke and get that individual to the hospital, the greater is the likelihood of reducing the extent of the damage that will be caused by stroke. And so here is why we say, and that's why we say time lost is brain lost. So now let's break down this acronym F-A-S-T one by one. F stands for face. So what you want to do is that you want to see if one side of this person's face is drooping or if it is numb. You can ask the person to just smile and if you see the smile is a little crooked or broken, then likely they have had stroke on one, you know, one side of the body. The second word is A in FAST. A stands for arm weakness. So you want to see if one arm is weaker or heavier than the other arm. What you can do is that you can ask the person to raise both their arms and if you see that one arm is uh, deviating downward, then it's an indication of weakness in that arm. The third acronym is S, which stands for speech. So what you want to do is that you want to check if this person's speech is slurred. So you can ask this person to say something. You can say a sentence and ask them to repeat it. You can also check if they are understanding what you are saying. So uh, those are F-A-S. Now the last one, T, stands for time. Time to call 911. And if a person is showing any of the above symptoms, then it's time to immediately call the 911 because they are going to take them to the hospital. I usually suggest that people do not try to drive the person themselves to the hospital um, because paramedics are trained exceptionally well in handling stroke patients and they can get them to the hospital faster um, while still administering some procedures on the way. So remember, like I said, time lost is brain lost. So you want to call 911 as soon as you detect somebody is having a stroke. And one other thing that I do want to mention with this FAST is that every stroke is unique. So you may see only one or few of the symptoms that we just discussed. The symptoms depend on the location of the stroke. So if you don't see all of the symptoms, do not disqualify it as not a stroke because 
any or all of the symptoms above can be related to stroke and uh, you want to call 911 as soon as you recognize that somebody is having a stroke. Great. Thank you for that review. I, that's so helpful. I'm glad that we have an acronym like that that tells us exactly what to look for. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can tell us who is at risk of having a stroke? Is, is there a set of characteristics of people who are at risk for having a stroke? Yeah, so, you know, I do want to touch on uh, two things here. The first thing is that uh, there are some specific risk factors that are modifiable. Uh, which we briefly touched upon in the previous question that you asked. And then there are some risk factors that are not very easily modifiable. So let's talk about the risk factors that are modifiable. So individuals who have high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels, who smoke, have diabetes type 1 or 2, are overweight, um, have a diet or take a diet regularly that is rich in saturated fats or sodium, are at risk for having stroke. But uh, people who also have um, a heart rhythm disorder, which is called arterial fibrillation, also have a higher risk for stroke. Now, the good news is that most of these risk factors are controllable or manageable. There are other set of risk factors that are not controllable, such as age. You know, just an increasing age is, is a risk factor for stroke. The second one is family history. If you've had somebody else in your family who's had a stroke before. Um, the third one is race, which we are increasingly recognizing these days that people from um, African-American and Hispanic descent have much higher chances of having a stroke than white or Caucasians. Um, the other one I want to talk about is gender as a risk factor for stroke. So it's now very well known that women have a higher chance of having a stroke or more women than men are detected with stroke every year. And it is because of, you know, pregnancy and birth control and menopause that are all related to the um, female gender. Um, the other one we talked about is the history of a prior TIA or a prior stroke is also a risk factor and it's not controllable because it's already happened in the past. But I do want to, you know, uh, uh, before we end this uh, uh, question, I want to point out that if you have any of the non-controllable risk factors, it is um, even greater reason for you to work on those risk factors that are controllable. So knowing about the risk factors that are controllable and those that are not is, um, is really good because at least you can control those that can be controlled if you are in, uh, you know, um, uh, in, if you have risk factors that cannot be controlled. Fantastic. Thank you for that very comprehensive answer. You know, you are the stroke researcher at CSU that comes to mind. When I wanted to do a topic about stroke awareness, you were the first person that came to mind. And, and that's because your research is very steeped in the stroke population. You often work with participants who have had strokes. So I wonder if you can tell us about your research and maybe briefly review a few of the studies or projects that you've done at CSU. 
Absolutely, Hannah. Thank you for the opportunity to share my work with everybody here in uh, Fort Collins and everybody else who's listening to this podcast. So um, the work at my lab is focused on understanding the effect of stroke on movement and cognitive abilities. So our goal is to design rehab interventions that will promote and prolong uh, functional mobility, as I say, in individuals with neurological disorders, primarily stroke, but also those who have uh, mild dementia or Alzheimer's disease, as well as older adults. Now, when I say functional mobility, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Functional mobility to me implies your ability to drive, walk, to balance yourself while you're moving from one place to other in the house, and also your ability to use your hand to do everyday tasks. So in general, functional mobility is anything that allows you to navigate your environment safely and independently. So um, the most recent publication that came out of my lab is in Journal of uh, Neural Engineering and Neurorehabilitation. And uh, this is a unique study. Uh, it focuses on driving abilities in stroke. What we have shown in this paper is that um, both the cognitive and motor impairments uh, contribute to the, a longer braking response time in people who have stroke. While, you know, it is, it seems very obvious that um, an impaired hand or a leg will result in slower speed of movement uh, and therefore will affect braking, it is not quite well known, at least in the stroke population, that the cognitive abilities are just as important as motor abilities in, uh, in a faster response time. So our paper was the first paper that established the contribution of both motor and cognitive impairments towards braking response time in stroke patients. Then um, another study that I do want to share with everybody is um, the title of the study is Strength or Motor Control, What Matters in High-Functioning Stroke? So um, in this study, um, the question that we were asking is that we know that as a result of stroke, people experience weakness in their arm or leg. And is that weakness sufficient to explain the reduction in the functional abilities after stroke? For example, we looked at walking and driving as our two key functional abilities. So the question was, is strength sufficient to explain the deficits that we see in walking and driving? And the answer is no. While you know strength is a very important clinical indicator of stroke recovery, what we found is that it's not just the amount of force that you can exert, in other words, the strength that you have, but it is also about how well you can control that force that you are able to generate. And I want to share a very interesting story uh, from uh, my doctoral days again, which really motivated me to do this, uh, you know, to pursue this line of research. So I had an individual who came to the lab and was extremely, um, uh, you know, well built and strong. And uh, he was in the rehab for about four weeks. And what happened was that our goal was that we wanted to increase this person's strength. So we measured the strength before the motor intervention. We measured it after the intervention, and he seemed to have improved 
improved so i asked him so are you feeling happy that you are stronger now uh, after the intervention and he said no and i asked him why so he said that even though i'm stronger i still cannot fix an omelet for my grandchild so i asked him why is that he said that if i if you give me a five pound of a stone uh, to hold in my hand i can hold that stone really well because now i have the strength to do that but if you give me an egg to hold i tend to crush it because I cannot control my strength to manipulate the egg in a way that I can carefully break it and make an omelet. And that just was a light bulb moment for me where I realized that, well, you know, strengthening uh, individuals with stroke should uh, should not be the only goal. The, it has to be further extended into um, allowing them or, you know, providing further intervention to enable them to use that strength meaningfully. So uh, this is the broad overview of what we do at my lab. Recently, our lab was funded by National Institute of Health and American Heart Association to understand how fluctuations in movement and cognition may predict somebody's likelihood of having a fall or um, predict the decline in driving function. We are focusing these studies specifically in individuals with stroke and mild dementia, which is also known as mild cognitive impairment in a more technical terms. So if you or someone that you know has experienced a stroke or has mild dementia and is interested in participating in our studies, you can contact our lab. Uh, the name of my lab is Laboratory of Movement Neuroscience at Colorado State University. You can also email us. Our lab email ID is mnrlab, so it's mnrlab at colostate.edu. Hannah, I wanted to share another very interesting thing um, that we are doing. So this is an outreach event that we are conducting this month since May is a stroke awareness uh, month. Uh, my team is going to organize a stroke mobility clinic this summer for individuals with stroke um, and their family members. And here is what we are going to offer. We are going to give a chance to these individuals, both people who have had stroke and their family members to get assessment of their fall driving and dementia risk at a very minimal and affordable cost. We will also offer some suggestions for balance and fall prevention strategies and some movement classes uh, that are based on research as well as reference to the driving rehab specialist if you desire one. And um, the stroke mobility clinic will be conducted almost a month from today sometime in first or the second week of June. So if you want to mark your calendars, the more information will be on our lab website. You can just Google uh, Laboratory of Movement Neuroscience at Colorado State University. Yes, and we will be sure to link all of that information in our episode notes as well. I know you had your first outreach clinic at, uh, what was it, May 6th and 7th, so last week. How did That's that right. go? It was great. We had a really large turnout, even though we had only opened it up to uh, CSU, specifically the staff, faculty, and their family members. And it was very interesting that we people came in to get screening for their fall and driving risk and they went out feeling like i thought i had some issues but i wasn't sure and now i have a scorecard showing exactly what is the extent of this issue but they also 
went uh, you know with some information on where where they can go from here next so that they can recognize um an early risk for falls or driving crash risk and try to ameliorate that so that they can you know walk longer without falls and drive longer without you know any accidents that's fantastic. And it's just such a great thing that you're offering to the community. And I'm just excited to see where it goes because I know your plan is to hopefully offer something like this, you know, maybe once every semester. Absolutely. So we are going to, you know, uh, target this uh, to not just people who have had stroke and Alzheimer's disease, but we will open it up to everybody in Larimer County. Everybody who's above the age of 65 years of age um, can come and get a screening for fall and driving crashes. Wonderful. Thank you. So speaking of, you know, the topic of I thought I had something going on, but now here I have this scorecard that I can take with me. I'm wondering if you can tell us just generally, how can we prevent strokes from happening? What is the best advice for that? Yeah. So, you know, the cool thing about stroke is that 80% of all strokes are preventable. But the first thing to do is to educate oneself on the known risks of stroke and the warning signs of stroke like we are doing today in uh, the podcast next i think knowing your own risk is very useful so american heart association has on their website a quiz uh, for assessing your own risk uh, for stroke and this is available both in english and spanish so you can just input your information there and they can give you um, you know the risk for stroke that you in particular have But once you identify or know the risk that you have, it's very important to control the risk by managing the risk factors. And whether, you know, those risk factors are hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, smoking, obesity, whatever is specific to you. Now, this can be done, of course, with medication, but it can also be done by lifestyle changes. And here, nutrition and physical activity play a very important role. So healthy diet usually constitutes, you know, uh, low sodium, uh, low saturated trans fats, and more fruits and vegetables uh, in your uh, everyday meal. Uh, Also maintaining healthy weight and BMI. Uh, Another important thing, especially for the younger individuals is we don't realize how much smoking poses a risk not just to your lungs but also to your brain and can cause stroke so quitting smoking and also limiting the alcohol intake can be another thing one can do Uh, but most importantly i think maintaining your physical activity levels is critical i think the recommendation is to Uh, two and a half hours of moderate to intense aerobic exercise uh, once a week for adults in United States. And this can be even as simple as brisk walk that can help reduce um, the risk for having a stroke. I think our listeners will probably recognize by this point in our podcast that the advice for preventing strokes is the same advice for just living a healthy life just generally, you know, and, and ways to prevent different chronic diseases from happening is just, you know, eating as healthily as you can and getting that movement in. Don't smoke, don't drink, all the same things you always hear. <laughs> yes, 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 that's right. I think uh, stroke is a cardiovascular disease, so it's uh, not surprising that 
most of the things that apply to heart disease also applies to brain stroke uh, in terms of risk factors and uh, measures that you can take to prevent it. So this last question is the question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And I'm sure it's very similar to the answer you gave on how to prevent strokes. But what is your best advice for healthy aging from your perspective and what you research? Hannah, the answer will not be the same. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. That's great. <laughs> yeah, um, so my best advice for successful aging is um, to do all you can to maintain independence in your mobility. So independent mobility means that you can move, walk, and drive safely in your community so that you can really engage with your family and friends and also socially with other people. So I believe that uh, independent mobility is the key to healthy aging because it enables us to do the things that uh, matter most to us and also allow us to lead a long, healthy, and happy life. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Neha. I think this has just been so perfect and such a timely topic for us to release next week. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. I hope that this is useful to those who are listening and that they see that we are doing some really nice work here in Fort Collins that they can help and collaborate with, you know, just even by participating in our studies or spreading the word. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.